Welcome to this week's presentation from Bethesda, a church community where anyone can belong. We hope that the following presentation encourages you in your faith journey. Thanks for listening. Well, so good to see each and every one of you here this morning. Uh, last Sunday was silent mode here in this building as uh, we had some cancellations due to weather. I'm so glad that we're here today. And uh, I mentioned the last time I preached, I made the comment in, in just joking around that, um, you know, I wasn't going to be speaking in the silent mode series, and I made the presumption that uh, maybe it was because I ain't silent very often. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, but uh, maybe I should have kept silent because, you, obviously, I'm here this morning. All right? That's a joke, by the way. All right? There we go. But uh, anyways, it's always a privilege. It's seriously a privilege uh, sincerely a privilege to preach the Word of God. And today we're going to get into part two of our Silent Mode series as we look at uh, Elijah and uh, putting a title on this, Turning Down the Noise. Turning Down the Noise. If you see on the screen, the subtitle is The Art of Being Silent in a Hectic World. And the world we live in is hectic indeed. Uh, but th that captures the, the essence of what we want to communicate. You know, it's hard enough being silent when everything is calm, let alone when everything is chaotic. But our series is about being able to find a place to spend with God, to, to meet with Him, to worship, to, to talk with Him, but also to have an opportunity to hear what He wants to say right in our lives, right in the middle of our noise and everything that's going on. Pastor Bruce introduced this series a couple of Sundays ago, and he talked about David and David allowed in his life, allowed the noise in his life to drown out the voice of God. And the end result was that he ended up sleeping with Uriah's wife, uh, getting her pregnant, and then ultimately went and had him killed. Um, and so, but God saw it all, and he sent Nathan the prophet to, to, uh, to speak to him. And David came face to face with his sin and ended up having to repent before the Lord and and God did something in his life. But the crux of Pastor Bruce's message was that it is not the distraction that was the issue. It's what the distraction was keeping is what keeps us from. And, of course, what distractions ultimately keeps us from is our relationship with God. And I, I want to pick up from where we left off and talk about Elijah's experience with God. And now God uh, turned down the noise in his life and created a place and created a space where Elijah could hear that still small voice of the Lord. You know, maybe there's one or two here this morning who, who have been dealing with quite a bit of noise lately in your life. Maybe there's someone here today who have been distracted by all sorts of things. Some of them good in a sense, you know. Sometimes there's, there's things in our lives that are good, but, you know, you can get focus on them. And you know what? Your relationship with God is suffering as a result. Maybe there's someone here who wants God to speak into your life. Maybe, maybe you're here and you haven't heard from the Lord in a while. Or maybe you're waiting on God to speak in your life over an issue or a problem or a need or a situation in your life that you're looking for him to give direction. Well, if that's you this morning, I want you to tune in, listen in, and hear what the Spirit would say to us all this morning, myself included, through his word. Tune in because God wants to speak to us. I want you to repeat after me because it's so important. Sometimes we think he wants to speak to, you know, he's spoken his, his scripture and he spoke to people, but God wants to speak to us right now. 
So can you repeat after me? God wants to speak to me. One more time. God wants to speak to me. If you have the word of God, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings 19. If you have the physical Bible, you can turn there. If you have the digital version, you can turn there. It's also on the, on the screen and also on our YouVersion events site, okay? I'm reading from ESV this morning. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of those by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked God that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a, and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord uh, came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for your, the journey is too great for you. And he arose and drank, ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for you. Uh, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke, it, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and have killed your prophets with the sword. <clears throat> and I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, the king, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. And yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. May God bless his word into our hearing this, this morning or this afternoon. I'm not sure what it is anymore. Anyways, in order to understand this story, we need to broaden the lens by which we are viewing this text and, and go back a couple of chapters so that we can really see this story and understand it better in its totality. Let me quickly say that back in 1 Kings 16, a man, a man by the name of Ahab uh, succeeded his father Omri as the king of Israel. And scripture says he reigned for 22 years. Scholars say that his reign marked the depths of spiritual decline in Israel. 
Things had gone from bad to worse spiritually, and Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. And the king who was chosen to lead the people of God was supposed to be a king that, that, that led the people towards God and led the, that led the people in the ways of God and, 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 and led by example of really what a relationship with the Lord looks like. But unfortunately for the majority of the kings of Israel and also after the kingdom split, the kings of Judah as well, they were, they were anything but godly. And Ahab was the definition of an ungodly king. If you looked up Wiccan in the dictionary of that day, you would see his picture there for sure. You know, it's funny because as I was preparing for this message, I just wanted to, I looked up the word wicked as, as I was preparing to see what other words would also describe it. And uh, I was thinking, you know, maybe the words evil or vile or immoral or something along those words would make the list. But you know what it came up first? Good. <laughs> Great. Cool. Fabulous. Fab, fantastic, impressive, and you know, I have to be guilty because sometimes if someone shows me something, especially like when I seen the two-to-one victory last night for the Habs over the Leafs, I was like, wicked, you know, so I was like, you know, it meant, it meant good, but I understand why the thesaurus is the way it is, but anyways, but the last two in the description were distressing and dreadful, but that is what it was like in Ahab's day, a little different than how we put it, but wicked was something that was seen as awesome, as good. That's wonderful. First Kings 16 and 30 says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. If you look at this story in the message version, it says he was a champion of evil. And being the champion of evil that he was, he evaluated the things that the other kings had done before him and said, you know what? You think you've done wrong before the Lord? You think you know what wicked means? Well, just take a look and see what, and watch what I will do. First of all, he marries Jezebel, who was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of uh, a people called the Sidonians. And this group of people were living in Canaan when the people of God were to take over the promised land. And God said to Moses, if, when you're going in, you've got to get rid of all the people, drive them out, uh, be, including the Sidonians, lest you be led astray by the worship of false gods and idols. And God says, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, it's going to come back to bite you. But the Israelites didn't drive at everybody as God said. And, and now generations later, the negative influence of the Sidonians would affect the nation of Israel from the top down. They worshiped Baal and other, other false gods. And soon after their marriage, we see that Ahab erected uh, an altar for Baal in a house for Baal, which he had built in a place called Samaria. And as a result, 1 Kings 16.33 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the other kings who were before him. And it's in this context, and it's in this situation that God introduces Elijah. How many would want the job of Elijah? <laughs> you know? I don't know if he put in a resume. <laughs> But uh, if there's, I don't think there are any others. But it's in this context that God calls him to be a prophet and to speak to a message from God to Ahab. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. And Yahweh was a form of the Hebrew name that, that is used in Scripture. And, and in, that, in, the, in the face of a king that has turned away from God, in the face of a nation that was supposed to be God's chosen people that had walked away from God, Elijah stands counterculturally and says, you may serve Baal, 
You may do what is evil. You may have led the nation away from God, but Yahweh is my God. And here's what God says. There's not going to be a bit of rain on this earth. There's going to come, there's coming a drought. And and Elijah got a little bit of, he adds a little bit of spice to it and says, guess what? It ain't going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And to some that would seem as if he were speaking arrogantly, but instead he was speaking with authority, the authority that God had placed upon his life. And after speaking this to Ahab, God leads him to a place where he has water to drink from a brook and he uses ravens, which is a miracle in of itself to bring him food to eat. And over the next while, as we see in the the context of the scriptures, that God allows him to perform great miracles so that people would understand that Yahweh was his God, that Yahweh was God. He revealed that Yahweh was his God as, he, as he's used to miraculously give a, a needy widow an unending supply of flour and oil and said, this is going to keep flowing until the drought is over. He revealed that Yahweh was his God as he raised another widow's son from the dead. And he revealed that Yahweh was his God in 1 Kings 18 as he challenges Ahab, the wicked king, to a contest. He says, get all Israel to come to Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal. And the 400 prophets of the Asher. And this contest was between the 450 prophets of Baal and himself. Not the best odds, but Elijah knew that God was with him. And he says, guys, he says to the people, how long are you going to be wavering between whom to serve? He said, if Baal's God, then serve him. But the Lord is God, follow him. The scripture says the people respond by remaining silent. Didn't have nothing to say. They They went into a different type of silent mode altogether. They had not seen anybody challenge Ahab, and they're wondering how this is all going to turn out. And they were tuned in to what was going to happen. And so all Israel gathers on Mount Carmel, and Elijah presents to them a challenge to see who's the true God. He says, we're going to build two two altars, and we're going to put a sacrifice on it. And he says, the God who answers by fire is going to be the true God. And so he gives them uh, the opportunity to go first, but no matter what they said or did, nothing Happened. They went so far as to cut themselves as he called out to Baal, but nothing happened because Baal didn't exist. It says in 1 Kings 18, 29, they raved on until the time of the offering, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then they went into, they had a silent mode, silent mode experience of their own, but for them, it would be a deadly silence. When it was Elijah's turn, he repairs the altar of the Lord and, and he uses 12 stones to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, which was God's chosen people. And he digs a trench around the altar and he, he gets them to, to douse. How many know, know it's not easy to, to light uh, wet wood? I was in the, the woods the other day and I was, I was trying to get a, a boil up on the go and it was just a struggle. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. But anyways, I still had my cup of tea, by the way. I found where there's a, God made a way where there didn't seem to be a way. Amen. I, amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Cup of tea with my Vienna sausages. Anyways, we'll keep on going. But he douses the altar with water three times, and, and then he calls upon the Lord in prayer and says, God, uh, you know, uh, Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known that you are the God in Israel. And he goes on with a further prayer, and immediately after he prays, God answers by fire uh, from heaven and consumes everything, the rocks, the sacrifice, the wood, and even the water around the trench. And, every, and all the people realize who really is God and how far they've drifted from God and how they've been led astray and they end up chasing down those who were there that day, chasing down the prophets and, and taking them out. And you would think that that would be the end of it. 
Baal wasn't real. God was real. Case closed. But the word of the outcome of the contest got back from Ahab to Jezebel, his wife, and she was infuriated. She had gone so far as to kill the Lord's prophets earlier. Now she sets her eyes and sights on Elijah and says, you are dead. I'm going to see to it. You're dead. And when Elijah hears her about her death threat, he flees for fear and runs away because he is frightened to death that his life was next. And this may be, when you look at the story, it may seem like a strange response after going through such a victory, but you have to understand that oftentimes that vulnerability follows victory. Victories often leave a deficiency of our energy and our emotions, and and as a result, we are open to spiritual attack. It's like climbing a mountain. You expel so much energy getting to the top, and and, and, and that coming back down is challenging and dangerous. Charles Swindle once said, our most vulnerable moments usually come after a great victory, especially if that victory is a mountaintop experience with God. Those are the times when we need to set up a defense against the enemy. You see, the enemy attacks what God anoints, and when you have the courage to step out in your faith and are used of God, you need to have the spiritual armor of God on because the devil will do all he can to take you out. Whether you step out and you get baptized in water, you step out and you start taking alpha, you step out and you start taking growth tracker, you step out and you start serving, you need to have your spiritual armor on. And using a messenger, Jezebel utters a death threat. Now, Jezebel was no ordinary woman. You have to understand that. In an age that was dominated by male leadership, she, she, uh, she as the queen, was the one who was really in control. She was ruthless. She was fierce. She was powerful. And even Ahab, this wicked man, was frightened out of her. One scholar says this woman has the fiercest Ahab lacks, the civil authority, the prophets of Baal act, and a freshness for battle that Elijah no longer possesses. She is as worthy an opponent as God's servants ever face in Scripture. Who or what can defeat her? She was so wicked that when she spoke, the very voice of Satan himself was speaking through her. When she spoke to Elijah, when he received that message, he didn't just hear the voice of Jezebel. He heard the voice of Satan and received a message that, you know, was right from the pit of hell. Some of you are here today. You might know exactly what that feels like. You know what it's like to be on the receiving end of a message that's definitely not from God. You may know like I said, what it is to receive a similar message from someone, some, something. You, like I said, you may not have had your life threatened, but, but a messenger has been sent by Satan. It could become from an email, a, 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 a Twitter, a, a, tw- a tweet, a, a, an email, a, a letter, some form. And, and, and Satan has sent a messenger to threaten you, to frighten you, to discourage you, to intimidate you. And the noise of all those messages is all you've been able to hear. You see, when Satan speaks, he speaks lies into our lives. He speaks discouragement. You ever gone through discouragement? He speaks discouragement over your life. When he, when he speaks, he speaks fear into your life. When he speaks, he speaks doubt into your life. And he speaks so many other awful things to get you 
in a place where you're like Elijah, frightened to death. When Elijah received the message, the noise of fear was turned way up in his life. And it was so loud and deafening that it diminished the victory that Elijah just experienced and was all he could hear. Here he is, fear surrounds him and overwhelms and, and overtook him and he runs for fear that he, his life was next. The text says that he ran away to a place called Beersheba, about 160 kilometers away, which is no doubt it would have taken a, a bit of time on foot or even if he's riding an animal back then, it still would have taken a, a while. And there he leaves his servant behind and he keeps on going into the wilderness. And as he's traveling along the pathway, the external noise of fear that came from Jezebel produced an internal noise of discouragement that had, they had both the same effect. It took Elijah's focus off God. See, no matter what we face, the end result, if we let it, is that our focus is taken off of God. And with his focus off God and onto a situation, the external, internal noise he's dealing with is deafening and is drowning out God's voice. And Elijah did what many of us do when we're discouraged. And when the noise of the situations of life drowned out the voice of God, he wanted to be alone, which is the worst thing anyone can do when you're discouraged. He was discouraged probably because he thought that, you know, that victory at Mount Carmel would turn the trajectory of the nation and Ahab, uh, turn them around and Ahab and Jezebel would finally, you know, surrender and that pagan worship would come to an end. He said, well, this is it. But when he saw that she was anything from defeated and with his energy drained, he succumbed to vulnerability, a vulnerability he probably didn't even realize was there. And after walking for an extra day, he sits down under a tree and tells God that, you know, God, I've had enough of this. You ever say that to God? You ever be so drained, been through such a battle, that you just say, God, I can't take any more of this? Have you ever been so discouraged and so in a place of fear that you just, you know? And he says, I can't take any more. But in this place, his pain was answered by God's provision. His pain is met with God's mercy and his pain was taken care of by the care of God. This wasn't the first time that he found himself alone. We know that the first time as we read, it was God-directed, but this time it was self-directed. Either way, God provides for him by his grace, by his love, provides for him with food to eat and water to drink. You see, the presence of pain does not mean the absence of God. The presence of pain. You got pain in your life, it does not mean the absence of God. See, God uses pain to produce things in our life and to, in our lives to develop us and develop us for what he has planned for us. Pain is often an, an, a, an opportunity to be a recipient of God's provision. Pain is a tool that God uses. He doesn't always cause the pain, but it's a tool that he uses to, to turn down the noise in our lives and to, to get our eyes as we sang a few moments ago, back on him. And instead of taking his life as he requested, God once again provides miraculously for him by sending an angel to feed him and give him drink. And, and this was a reminder of him at the Kirith Ravine, no doubt. 
He was alone then and he was alone now, but by God's provision, God was saying, Elijah, I'm, you're not alone. I'm right with you. You might feel alone, but you're never alone as long as I, you have me. You might feel like I'm absent, but I'm your God always. And I will never leave you nor forsake you, sake you because you are mine and you're precious in my sight. You might be fleeing Jezebel and on the run, but there's no way you can flee from my presence. And receiving what he needed he, and to make an even longer journey, he leaves there and travels 40 days and 40 nights, around 400 kilometers away, if you can imagine that, to a place called Mount Horeb, which has been known as the mountain of God. This is the mountain where God showed up in a burning bush to Moses and called him to go into Egypt to set his people free. This is the very place, the very mountain where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the law. This is the very mountain where God's presence powerfully came in a consuming fire. This is the the mountain where God's glory, his Shekinah glory dwelled as the people of God was camped around it. And the Bible says that he went to a cave in this mountain and he spent the night there. And then the word of the Lord comes to him and says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very faithful to you, God, and that while the, the nation of Israel has been anything but faithful, they have turned against you, though I've served you and been zealous for you. I've lived the right way. They haven't. Yet, my life is the life that's in danger here. Something's not right. Elijah, whose name is God-centric, God-focused, Yahweh is my God, is not looking to God, but he's focusing on himself and his situation and his predicament and all that's happened to him. His eyes are turned inward upon himself and God turns that around and gains his attention in a way that Elijah is not used to. You see, Elijah was used to the spectacular, uh, the miraculous and the extraordinary, but he was used to speaking with authority. He was used to miracles and raising the dead and calling them far from heaven. He was used to God showing up in all the big things. But you see, church, God does not always show up in the, in the realm of the spectacular, in the realm of the extraordinary. God does not always answer by far. You think you got God pegged to responding a certain way, that God only operates in a certain way? God doesn't always operate in a certain way. God does not limit himself to show up in just one way or big ways. He doesn't act in the same way all the time. God does not fit into our nice, neat little, little boxes we've designed for him to fit into. And this is a lesson that Elijah would soon learn. And God says to him, Elijah, go stand on the mountain. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to show up. And Elijah's thinking now, God, that's more like it. We're getting back to the way it should be. I've seen God show up before. And Elijah thinks he knows exactly what's going to happen. He's pretty confident what's going to happen. A great and strong wind comes. And he's like, here it is. And it's so powerful that the rocks on the mountain shatter in pieces. And Elijah thinks, surely this is God. God's not in the wind. And then the scripture says a big earthquake comes and he shakes the mountain. He's like, well, man, you know, when the, when the fire fell and when, when God dwelt on Mount Hor before, well, the, the mountain shook. Surely this is God. God wouldn't end the earthquake. And then a fire comes, which was often the symbol of God's presence. And Elijah knows the significance of where he is. He says, I, I know that, that God showed up in a burning bush and God showed up in a fire on Mount Hor before. And, and, and you know, he, he, he's, this is him. But the Lord was not in the fire. Elijah's confused. <laughs> all these big things, and yet God's not in it. He was in all these big things before, but now he's not. You don't know what's going on. 
And after all this, Scripture says the sound of a low whisper. Once one version says, he heard a sound of sheer silence. And God was turning down the noise in his life and did, did so to create a space where he could speak into his life. Elijah had been focused on himself, which is often the case for us. We often, you know, it's, it's, it's just human nature. We focus on ourselves, our lives, what's going on. And but by turning down the noise, God gets his attention and his eyes are on God. And so in the silence, God shows up. And we see that in the silence, God speaks the loudest to him. And we see that God's presence is the greatest. In this sheer silence, this moment, he realizes this is God. He covers his face. And he hears a voice asking the very same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And his response is exactly the same verbatim. God, you know, it doesn't even respond to all that. Doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of his circumstances. He already knew about everything. See, God does not question us or ask questions because he's unsure of the answer. He asks us questions because he wants us to focus on him, on his purpose, on his plan, on his will for our lives. Basically, God wasn't speaking about his circumstances. God was speaking about his calling upon his life. What are you doing here in this cave? What are, you, what, what are you doing here at Mount Horeb? Have I not called you? That same calling when, when I called you to speak to Ahab is still on your life. Nothing has changed. Have I told you that your life was over? What lie are you believing? Have I told you that your ministry was over? My presence has not left you, Elijah. My authority has not left you. My calling remains upon your life. And God not, does not speak to his past or his predicament, but he speaks to his purpose. You see, the devil would love for you and I to keep focusing on what is against us or who is against us rather than who is for us and with us and in us. The devil wants us to stay focused on the pain of our past and all the things that have happened rather than the purpose for our future. He would love for us to stay focused on the noise in our lives so that we can't get to the place where we can hear the still, small voice of God speaking. God didn't bring you here only to leave you. God didn't bring you to this place where you are right now and we're all in... in you know, in our lives are in different journeys. Some of us are students, some of us are retired, and some of us are in between. God didn't bring you to where you are right now only to say, okay, I'm going to walk away. And God did not do what he's doing in Elijah's life only to abandon him. No, as Paul once said, he who began a good work in you We'll carry it on to completion. We'll bring it to, we'll bring it to pass. Not just some of us feel like, you know, okay, he just began a good work in someone else or this person or that person, but he who began a good work in you. That's what he started in you. He's not gonna, he's gonna see it come to pass. And you don't have to bring it to pass. He's gonna bring it to pass because he's God. In other words, God started it and God is gonna finish it. He's going to see you through. It's like a parent 
You don't just be a parent for a season. It's like, oh, you're 18. I know I got a suitcase when I was 17, I think. <laughs> Every Christmas, 17-year-olds would get five of us. Anyways, this is just a joke, all right? <laughs> Anyways, but, you know, you're always a parent. Regardless if you're a freshly baby as we had here this morning, whether you're 90 years old, your kids are always your kids. That's what it's like with God. What he started, he's going to finish. He's not going to abandon. And that is what God wanted Elijah to know. You know what? That is what God wants you to know here today. Whatever God started in your life, he's going to bring it to pass. As, I, as the worship team returns and as I bring this to a close, let me say that God speaks to Elijah's purpose. And he says, I want you to go to Damascus, which is about 700 kilometers north. It's going to take a while, Elijah. But i got a purpose for your life. I want you to go to anoint Hazael, the next king of Syria, the next king of Aram. And I, I, I want you to anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel. They're going to be used by me to deal with your enemies, to deal with Israel, who's, who's wayward and the unfaithful generation. You don't have to do it, but they're going to do it. It's not your responsibility. It's just your, you have to be a vessel that I can work through. Then he says, under, it's kind of interesting that under Jehu's rule that Jezebel was killed under his leadership. Elijah didn't have to do it. He just had to be a pla- in a place where he could hear from God and be a vessel. When things were reported about how she died, the king said, this fulfills the message from the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Elijah from Tishbe. Elijah was, took all the pressure on his own self, thinking he's the one to do it. But God said, no, I, I'm, I just need a vessel. I just need you to do what I've called you to do, to be my mouthpiece. Elijah got caught up on all the noise, and it just about killed him. But as God turns down the noise, he was able to hear his voice. And he heard from God and knew what he, his purpose and plan was. And more than just calling, commissioning kings, we see, which is awesome, God, God used Elijah to select the next, uh, the next prophet, whose name was Elisha, whose name means God is my salvation. And Elijah, before he went to heaven, Elijah is only one of a few in Scripture that didn't die. He was taken in a whirlwind. And before he was taken, Elisha says, give me a double portion of your spirit. What you did, I want to do as well. I, I want that a same anointing. I want a double portion of it. And the awesome thing about it is that Elisha, if you look at the scriptures and you parallel the two guys, that he does twice as many miracles, twice as many things as Elijah did. And there's one other thing that God says to encourage Elijah. He says, oh, by the way, Elijah, there's 7,000 people. You think you're alone? I've gathered together 7,000 that I've protected that have not bowed to Baal, they're like you, Elijah. They love me with all of their heart. You're not alone. And with all that Elijah, God had said, Elijah is renewed and re- obeys God, and God takes care of the rest. Can you imagine if Elijah couldn't get into the place where he, the noise was turned down and he, you know, and he couldn't hear the voice of God, and maybe he would have abandoned his calling, I don't know. As great as his ministry was, God was going to do something greater. Elijah's one of the great men of God, but God said, I'm going to do something greater. 
maybe God wants to do something greater through you. Maybe there's who's on the other, we've said it before, who's on the other side of your obedience? Who's at your school? Who's at Kona? Who's at Mun? Who's at your workplace? That God's saying, I, I need you to, to hear from me, to know what to do, to be my mouthpiece messenger, my servant. Yes, I want to do something in you, but I want to do something greater through you. And I said it in my last message, but it fits in this message too. God turns down the noise in our lives, not just because of what he wants to do in us, but because of what he wants to do through us. And there's a whole city of people that need him to do something through us. It's great to have this gathering. We had second service. I love in each and every one of you, but there's a whole city that we live in that needs Christ. The noise in our lives, you know, can distract us from hearing what God wants to say to us. It can discourage us and overwhelm us and get us to focus on our challenges in our lives rather than the one who's able, enables us to overcome them. And, you know, some of you here this morning and some of us here this morning are like Elijah in that cave. You come this morning, grabbed your coffee, took your seat, but you're in a cave of fear. Some of you here this morning are in a cave of worry. You don't know what to do. You're in a situation you haven't been in before. Some of you here this morning are in a cave of doubt. The enemy's been speaking into your life and, and, and you don't really know up from down in your, in your walk with God. Maybe you're in a, a cave of pain and there's, there's things going on in your life that you're just heartbroken over. Maybe it's your, your son or daughter, your mom or dad or a friend. Situation you've gone through, your heart is broken. You're in a cave of pain, cave of brokenness. It's a whole gamut of, of caves that exists. You say, but pastor, you don't know. I've been going through some things, and you're in that cave. There's been some challenges in my life. There's been some difficult situations that I have come through and that I'm in. But God asks you and I the very same question that he asks Elijah. He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here at Bethesda? This morning, God, you know, I don't believe you're here by, by accident. What are you doing here in this season of your life? What are you doing here this morning? You might be tempted to say, but God, you know, all this and you know, you don't know what I've been going through. You don't know the, the pain, the hurt. And God's not focusing on the past, your predicament, your problems. He's focused on his plan and his purpose in your life. God is, doesn't ask that question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking because he wants to turn down the noise in your life and in my life so we can hear from him, be encouraged, be reminded of who he is, be reminded of his plan for our lives, be reminded of his purpose for our lives, be reminded of his divine will for our lives. Whatever cave you're in, God says, what are you doing here? Pastor Bruce 
said recently, don't focus on the wise. It's human nature to focus on the wise. Why is all this happening? Why did I go through this? Why did, you know, so-and-so leave me? Why did I lose my job? Why am I in this situation I'm in? Why did the doctor give me that diagnosis? And ask God, and we're tempted to ask God, why, why, why? But instead of focusing on the why, focus on the what. And ask God, what are you trying? What is the purpose of all this? What are you bringing me into next? And I'd have just come out of this. What, what do you want to teach me in this season of my life? What are you trying to do to prepare me, to develop me, to strengthen me, to equip me for what is next in my life? And not just my life, Lord, in the lives of those that are around me, in the lives of the generations that follow. At the opening of this message, I got you to repeat a phrase, and I'm going to conclude by returning to that this morning by doing the same. So I want you to understand that God wants to speak to you. You may say, well, I'm not important enough to God. I'm too young. I'm too not qualified. I'm too this, too that. But God has a word for you. God has a word for you individually. God has a word for us collectively. But God is always speaking and has something to say. Can we say that together and believe as we're saying it and be open to what he wants to say to us? God wants to speak to me. Can we say that together? God wants to speak to me. Can we say that like we believe it? God wants to speak to me. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our church community, please visit our website, Bethesda.ca, and consider joining us for a gathering soon.